This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 3629, for Thursday, the 30th of June, 2022. Today's show is entitled, Linux in Laws Sai, the show with red pandas, mosaic killers, and metal corrosion. It is part of the series Linux in Laws. It is the 60th show of Monochromic, and is about 73 minutes long. It carries an explicit flag. The summary is... An interview with Eric Rescorla Firefox CTO on browsers, the internet, and hardcore CFI. This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. This links in-laws episode... No, season one, episode something, to be determined later. Martin, how are things? Yeah, uh, things are back to normal. It's raining in the UK. So. It's raining in the UK? It is. It's... Whatever happened to global warming? Yeah, not not available here. <laughs> okay. So, um, Greta didn't stop thought? by. Yes. Can't complain. Good. Greta, Greta didn't stop by recently. <coughs> I don't think so. No, she was otherwise engaged. Yeah. I see. Fair enough. No, I'm fine. It hasn't rained here in ages, so I reckon all mm. the rain has been moving to the UK. So that's probably in order because, as we all know, the Met Office normally in the UK, full disclosure, in case you, d- you didn't know this yet, the summer is normally supposed to happen between the 13th and 14th of August, somewhere no, 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 around no, no, lunchtime. No, no, much earlier than that. It's usually June or May or something. And then, <laughs> but only for half an hour, right? Uh, you can be lucky if you have a, a day or so. You could put the heating outside and turn on the... Um, ah, yes. What I'm looking for. <laughs> Talking about heating, how, how many showers have you had these days? Um, about twice a day, but only cold, <laughs> because of the good. gap situation, glad, glad, glad as you're yes. apparently aware of. Yeah, yes, it's, the is getting through. Yeah. But Martin, what is the what is the situation with lower drivers and and what's what I'm looking for? Wheat and sunflower once again in the UK. I heard that you're facing desperate times. Not as far as I know, we can buy bread. So supply so chain it's, supply chain through in order. Yeah, nothing, nothing mm. new here. Yeah. It eventually it pays to to cozy up with the Russians, right? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe you should ask your chancellor. <laughs> ah, she's gone. I'm afraid. <laughs> no, the new guy. What's his name? Um, um, Olaf Scholz. Yes, him. Yes, he's a good dodgy, isn't he? 
Well, you tell me. I don't follow German <laughs> politics as much as you do, apparently. <laughs> but, but this is not the podcast no. about politics, never mind German or English or British anyway. Without further ado, we would like to introduce Eric Rascola. For those two listeners in the audience who do not know who Eric Rascola is, maybe Eric, you can introduce yourself. Uh, good morning. Nice to be here. Um, so I'm the CTO for Firefox. I work at Mozilla, uh, which is the company that makes Firefox. Um, so um, I lead a small team that does a bunch of things, including technical strategies, standards, um, a bunch of advanced work, um, advanced technology type work. Um, my main area of expertise is in communication security, um, and I did a lot of work on um, TLS, which is the main protocol that powers web security. Um, and um, most recently, I was the editor for the new version of the specification, which uh, um, now secures, I guess, about half the internet transactions on the, on the web. That was comprehensive. Thank you, Eric. Maybe for, I think we have eight listeners now, but maybe there's one among these eight who do not who doesn't know what firefox is never mind the mozilla foundation and corporation so why don't you give a little bit of background of the browser the corporation and the foundation and maybe even the ecosystem surrounding it yeah definitely so i mean obviously firefox is a, is a web browser um if you if you use chrome or you use safari um well you should try firefox Uh, so um, Firefox um, is an open source browser, um, uh, which means um, you know the source code is all available. You can build it yourself, um, or you can get it from us. The uh, um, it's 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 built by um, sort of a combination of a community open source process process and also by a set of people who work for the Mozilla Corporation, um, which is a sort of um, it's a it's, it's, Mozilla is an interesting entity because. We have this corporation, which is then wholly owned by the Mozilla Foundation, which is a nonprofit. And so the you know the overall mission of Mozilla as a whole is to uh, is to make the internet better. We have we have a whole set of slogans around this, but the overall um, you know mission is to make the internet better. And so you know the way this works is that the corporation builds products, and the foundation has a set of um, larger initiatives around you know um, things like trustworthy AI or um, Uh, you know, um, privacy on privacy, evaluating privacy products or, um, uh, you know, um, you know, public um, uh, mobilization around important policy questions. So, you know, we work together, um, the foundation, the corporation with the, with the foundation taking care, I think of sort of maybe one can think of the bigger picture stuff and the corporation think, taking care of the product oriented stuff. Mm. That was a high level overview. A full disclosure, people. I've been using Firefox since 2001 or 1999. I still have that T-shirt saying Firefox for beta tester that I think the foundation sent me or even the project because not too sure when they, when the corporation was founded, uh, but it's still blue and it's, and the writing is fading. Uh, that T-shirt, I might add, is about at least 13 years old. Four came out officially in 2011, maybe, 2012. Correct me if I'm wrong, Eric. And uh, the beta phase entered before I moved house, and that must have been 2009, 2008. That T-shirt has survived various attempts of kidnapping it, never mind stealing But I always managed to get it back, and it holds a, and it holds a kind of a place dear 
are close to my heart because Firefox is the browser that I use on a daily basis. In contrast to other people like my cherished co-host, <laughs> who strains every now and then, apparently. I've been following the project through the peaks and the troughs, but maybe now's the time to shed some light on the history of that browser, uh, maybe starting even with Netscape and what happened afterwards, if that's sure. all right. Sure, I, I can try. Um, I actually joined Mozilla in uh, 2013, so um, but, but I've been working on the web for a long time, so I have some perspective. So as people probably know, the first real commercial web browser was Netscape. Um, which I would think, in fact, was probably the first really big Silicon Valley, you know, startup.com hit. And um, so Netscape was was very popular at the time. Um, and then... This is um, mid-90s, right? This is mid-90s, correct. Thank you. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and and then what happened um, uh, is you may remember this company, Microsoft, um, and they yes, got their own Rick, web browser, uh, um, you know, was at the time called Internet Explorer. Yeah. Um, Martin, Martin <laughs> is our resident Microsoft expert. I'm not... <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, um, the, the, the consequence of having, you know, your product um, ship on, you know, be, be mostly used on someone else's product and having them ship their browser by default. And so people have to download your browser is that, you know, it has a negative impact on your market share. And, and so, you know, Netscape did not, was not doing as well as, um, as one would have liked. And towards sort of the end of like Netscape's um, lifespan, um, they decided to open source uh, the, the code. And so there's this large project to, um, to to open source the code and to build a new browser, um, which ended up being Firefox. And that went through, as I say, that's sort of before my time, but that went through a bunch of kind of like iterations, but eventually it became what is Firefox. And like Firefox still does include some, you know, a lot of that code was rewritten, but a lot of that code is still there. Um, and in fact, I've worked quite a bit on the security portions of Firefox and the, um, the security library NSS, like goes back to the very early days of Netscape. And so, you know, Firefox was really the first, um, you know, big open source browser. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, the first one to really where you could have all the source out there and you could work on it and you could read it yourself and you could build it yourself. Um, and, and much of the work in, on Firefox was done by people who volunteered and just volunteered the time and contributed to Firefox. And some of those people like now work for us and some of those people, you know, worked for us in the past and some of those people um, still volunteer and some of those people now work on Chrome or Safari actually. So it's really was the, was the, the beginning of this big ecosystem of the open sourcing of the web. Wow. And I think this is still lingering on. Um, I just have to take a look at the at the rendering engines. For for those people who just look at a browser all day long, the rendering engine is essentially the piece of software that takes HTML and CSS and some other components like JavaScript and puts them into pictures, uh, laid out text, and all the rest of it. And fire and and the whole this whole notion of I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say browser wars, but to some extent, at least the competition that has been going on also boils down to rendering, to rendering engines. Because if we take a look at browser history, there are a couple of competing rendering engines and then multiple browsers, let's put it this way, have been using these rendering engines. Uh, Bing comes to my, sorry, Bing or Bing? I can't even remember. Gecko, of course, which was, I think, the first <clears throat> Firefox rendering engine, if I'm completely mistaken. And then Quantum, but we're going to talk about Quantum and Rust in a minute, as this is, apart from other things, the Rust Marketing uh, Podcast, as we all well, we know it. That. 
Um, yes, and some other, and, and I mean, for example, and, and of course, I think there are three main rendering engines. It's, uh, the, the, um, Chrome is based on Bling, if I'm currently mistaken, Safari or WebKit, and Firefox on Gecko, and now Quantum, if I'm completely yeah. mistaken. So, yeah, so, so I think, as you say, the history is like very complicated. So, you know, Gecko is the historical don't, name. Don't worry, we, we have about four hours left, so go that's right ahead. Fantastic. I love talking about rendering engines, so um, th that's good. So when I got into the business um, around 2013, there were uh, there were three engines um, largely. Um, there was uh, there was WebKit, which powered uh, which powered uh, Safari and Chrome, um, and then there was um, uh, I believe I'm trying to remember what Microsoft called theirs. I think it was Trident at the time, um, um, and then there was Gecko, um, which powered Firefox. And shortly thereafter, um, the uh, Google decided, so Google and Apple collaborated on WebKit. So, so as you say, the story is that there's the, um, that there's, there's the engine, which is drives the networking and the JavaScript and displays the HTML. And there's the stuff around it, you know, the menu bars and stuff like that. And actually, um, fun story, the technical term for that stuff for the menu bars and the URL bar and that is Chrome. That's what everybody calls called browser Chrome. And that's where the name Chrome comes from. Um, and so, the um, so so shortly thereafter, uh, I guess in like thirteen or fourteen, um, Google decided that they um, were, didn't want to collaborate with uh, with Apple anymore on WebKit, and so they forked it, and so they built and and so they took so Blink is a WebKit fork, and so then for a while there were four engines, um, four major engines. There was Blink, there was WebKit, there was I guess as I say Trident, there was Gecko, and that like went on for a long time, and then. You know, two two other things happened. Um, as you indicated, Microsoft um took a stab at rewriting their entire system. Um, they had a, a, an engine called Spartan, um, and that's what Edge was originally built on. And then eventually, they decided they were just going to use um use Chromium. Um, so Chromium is also an open source project. is the basis of Chrome. And they said, well, we're going to just going to take Chromium and make Edge out of Chromium. And so. And so, and so, to now, to now there are three engines again, um, which is to say Chromium, which is to say Chromium, WebKit, and Gecko. So um, you were alluding to uh, you were alluding to Quantum. So uh, Quantum, I think you know our branding. Our branding has been a little confusing here, but really, Quantum was the name for the project that initially was the name for the project that, that we'd had to revitalize Gecko. So Gecko had gotten less attention perhaps than it needed over the years and it gotten kind of slow and kind of crufty in a bunch of ways. And so we had a big project that was designed to really revitalize Gecko. And that had a bunch of different components, some of which were taking in modern technologies from this servo experimental browser that had been built um, in Rust, as you said, at Mozilla. So that's where um, our new CSS system came from. It's also where our new graphics rendering system came from. So some of it was that. And then some of it was really just fit and finish. Was like, and, and so we had this big project that was, um, was called Quantum Flow that was like find um, every piece of jank in the system. So jank is the technical term in browsers for like when you type a key and nothing happens or when you try to like pull a menu bar and nothing happens and it takes a second or two, that's jank. And so we basically went through and um, this guy, Asan Agari, led this project where he went through and basically he and a bunch of guys found, a bunch of, a bunch of people found every single place in the system they could find where there was jank. And then we tried to systematically remove them. And so Quantum was the name for that project. And then by the time we were done, people felt like Quantum had actually become something different and became a good way to talk about Firefox. And so that's how Firefox Quantum, um, you know, um, came to be a thing. I, I will say, you know, we internally largely just say Gecko still, but 
uh, quantum is definitely a name that gets used as well. That's a very interesting perspective because at the end of the day, I think uh, Mozilla's engineers, and I reckon I'm talking about the community as well as the people employed by Marcus, uh, by, by Mozilla um, Corporation, weren't too happy with the performance of the existing rec um, rendering engine. But before, but before we go into, into the technical details, maybe we should explain what HTML, well, I reckon everybody knows what HTML is, but CSS plays a very important part here too, because CSS drives the rendering in terms of styles, because CSS stands for cascading style sheets. So essentially, um, for, for those people who do not know this, you take HTML, HTML is simply a markup language, and, and CSS gives it the fancy, gives it the fancy looks, let's put it this way. Needless to say, that requires a lot of software working in the background. Gecko, as far as I can recall, and Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, was a single-threaded, maybe multi-process rendering engine. And the idea behind Servo and subsequently Quantum was to introduce a significantly higher level of parallelism into the rendering as such, making or improving the overall rendering speed significantly. Full disclosure, we had about up to now... About 50% of our episodes were on Rust. Check out the back, uh, the back catalog, people. <laughs> Jokes aside. Okay, 99%. <laughs> <laughs> no, 50%, Martin, but thanks for the correction. Oh, okay. No, we, we had Steve Klabnik on from the, from the project itself. There was a, a, Rust, a high level Rust overview and some forthcoming episodes. Blatant teaser will have the Rust Foundation being present on this podcast. But if, but given the fact that you are the CTO of Eric, maybe you can talk about a little bit about the internal things, if you can, that led to the foundation of this. I'm almost tempted to say, en vogue hipster programming language, in Mozilla terms and beyond. Because if you take a look at the recent investments across the industry, I'm talking the likes of Google, the likes of Microsoft and all the rest of them, the Rust adoption is heavy as a system program and a system, as a systems program language left, right and center across the tier one, tier twos in the industry. But maybe given the fact that, okay, it was a little bit before your time, uh, but I reckon Rust still plays an important role at Mozilla as such. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So that's a, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to talk about there. So um, Rust, right was start, Rust was started before, uh, and just feel, you know, feel free to jump in. Uh, Rust was started before I got to Mozilla, but certainly much of the work was done um, after, I, after I was there, though not under not my team. Um, the, uh, I, I guess, I mean, maybe it's helpful to start with like a, a brief discussion of like what Rust is and why it's important in this case, right? Absolutely. So, um, so, so, like, most browsers are written in C++. Um, and, you know, C++ is, uh, you know, a very old language. Um, it's a, and, and really, it's based on C. Um, and, you know, and, and, and from an era when people thought that certain things were the programmer's responsibility as opposed to the responsibility of the language. So, as a concrete example, people thought memory management was a programmer responsibility. So you want to allocate some memory. You want to make sure that you don't accidentally like go like right outside the memory. That's like your job as a programmer, right? And, or as another example, you want to write a multi-threaded program, which runs in, uh, you know, multiple threads in the processor of time. 
Well, C didn't even really support that to start with. Um, but again, this is like a programmer responsibility, not to like use the same data in two threads at once, right? And so the idea with Rust is that we've now learned that people cannot program under these conditions. And that if you ask people to program in those environments, they inevitably make mistakes. And those mistakes become, you know, crashers or security vulnerabilities or whatever. Um, even, and, even if genetically enhanced? Well, Is not, it right for programming? Uh, well, I think we're not there yet, maybe, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll, I'll tell you. So we used to Google, have, take note. <laughs> yes. Um, in the San Francisco office of Mozilla, and it may still be there. I haven't been, been there in, in a little while because um, we had it closed down for a while. Um, there used to be a sign right above David Barron's desk. Uh, David Barron was one of the Mozilla distinguished engineers who worked very much on CSS. Um, and it was the sign was placed at about eight feet and it had a line and it said, you must be this tall to write multi-threaded code. And so, um, nice. you know, so the, the implication <laughs> of course is that nobody can write multi-threaded code without making mistakes. And so... Um, so, so, so Rust is, you know, one of a new generation, but I think perhaps the leading one of a new generation of programming languages that, that said that, look, we need to make it so that you can do all these things that you want to do and have them be fast and do systems programming, but they have to be safe at the same time. And I think they still have the slogan hack without fear. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about doing all the things you want to do. You want it multi-threaded code. You want it very performant code, but you want it to be that if you don't make mistakes, it's not catastrophic, right? And so that's what Rust enables. And so Rust was originally started, um, as, as you say, large, in great part to like build a new, a new JavaScript, sorry, a new um, uh, web engine, language? Servo. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And so, so we had this project for quite some time, Servo, which was basically building an entirely new engine out of, out of Rust, um, in Rust. And at the same time, we had people starting to build components in Firefox in Rust uh, uh, as well. So, but I think we, what, what Rust brings to the party, and as, as you, as you, as opposed to say um, Go or Swift, I think which are the other sort of languages that people often um, think of in the same category, is that it's really designed to be a systems programming language. And what I mean by that is it's really designed to displace C++. And so... Um, and, and so concretely, there's no, there's not like a garbage collector. So you don't have to take stalls every so often when the garbage collector, um, you know, has to reclaim memory. And so Rust is designed to like kind of behave like C++, but to be like just as fast, but safer to write in. So the, for obvious reasons, there's a lot of interest of, of that in the browser community. And now what we're seeing is interest in other communities as well, which is as you were alluding to that, that kind of investment. We make, as I say, modestly heavy use of Rust. You know, what we've typically done is two things. We've written new components in Rust. So um, there's this new networking protocol called Quick that, and we wrote the entire implementation in Rust. Um, and then we've taken things out of Servo and we brought them in, uh, in in Rust. And then I think finally, every so often we'll find something that is like so terrible that like it just needs to be written. And in those cases, we often rewrite, rewrite it in Rust. So an example of that is the URL parser got pretty substantially rewritten and that was rewritten in Rust. So I think, you know, the buy, it's, it's always very difficult when you're working in an old code base to know when it's good to rewrite things or when it's good to just fix them up in place, even if they're kind of gross. But we do what but the typical bias here is when you write something new, think about Rust. Interesting, because apparently Mozilla put a lot of money into the development of language and its ecosystem. But I can recall, and this is probably getting a bit controversial now, I can recall a couple of years back that quite a few people had to leave Mozilla And also the Rust Foundation was set up. Can you spell some beans on this one? Yeah. 
So I think I, I think that the way to think about this is Mozilla started Rust, and we thought it was very important um, to have it, and we think it's been really good for the ecosystem. But we didn't want to own Rust, and uh, you know we wanted the Rust to be something the community owned, not something that Mozilla owned. And so for quite some time, um, we'd wanted to figure out how to like stop having it be something where you know, all the engineers work for us and we kind of made the decisions and have it be something that had, a, had its own, that stood on its own feet. And so, you know, the, the idea behind the Rust Foundation was to have that, that place. Like that's probably like the, the, the closest answer. Um, you know, we still are, are heavily involved with that. Um, one of the people on my team is um, on the board of the Rust Foundation. So, but we fundamentally wanted this to be a community effort, not something that was all owned in, in perpetuity. Martin, sorry, uh, you had a question too. If Martin hasn't fallen asleep yet, if he has, I'm simply gonna go next. Just keep talking, yeah. Sorry, yes. <laughs> Martin, just, wait, you're like, I, I was just following the rust conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no. Martin, I told you to take the meds, didn't you? Well, the problem is, I did, yeah. <laughs> you did, yes. Anyway, go, yes. Ahead, go ahead, Martin, Mr. Wizard. Yeah, I think uh, um, as part of your job, you mentioned you. Um, you have a lot to do with standards. Yes. And uh, I guess, well, I guess it, in the browsing is one of the most, um, let, let's say, uh, let's call it hackable types of activities these days. Um, uh, certain airlines come to mind and et cetera. But um, how, how much of, of, of that work takes up your job and how much do you look to the open source community to, to help with all that? these kind of standards? Well, I mean, it's, it's a big effort. It's a big group effort, right? So I think, you know, we have people across the organization and also people we engage in with the open source community to develop standards. We try to, I think, weigh in where our, we think our voices will, our voice will matter the most and, you know, not weigh in with places where our voice won't matter. So, you know, that's a combination of our expertise, I think, and, you know, the expertise, the personnel we have as well as places where we have a real, um, you know, a real investment, right? So, you know, if it's HTML or CSS, then we like engage pretty heavily. Um, and, you know, there are other places I think where, you know, we've engaged less heavily, you know, so um, I, I, maybe an example, um, you know, we don't like, we don't engage in like congestion control, like internet congestion control very much. Like other people care about that. Um, we're glad it's being done. We think it's important, but like we don't have anybody in Mozilla who's like an expert on congestion control. So we don't work on that um, um, at that level, you know, say say Google does, right? So, you know, there's this new congestion control algorithm called uh, BDR that Google designed and like it's nice work, but you know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't work on like standardizing that kind of stuff. So, I mean, my team specifically focuses, I think, as I sort of indicated, largely on, um, networking stuff. So, you know, security, transfer protocols, um, you know, audio and video. So um, I, I, I and a bunch of people on my team, as well as many other people at Mozilla, worked on WebRTC, which is the specification mm -hmm. that's letting us have this conversation. Yeah. So I think those are places where I think Mozilla's had important, valuable influences. And I think that there are other places where, um, you know, like I say, um, uh, we're happy to let other people pick up the ball. Uh, maybe, maybe another example um, of, of a place where I think there's been excellent work um, that we participated in some and, and are, are pulled back from a little bit, but other people put the ball is an audio, audio and video codecs. 
where you know there's this, there's this alliance for open media which is standardizing um, AV1. I guess I guess Alpha standardized AV1, so I think they're on the AV2 now. And so you know that's a, a great example of where other people are doing fantastic work that we're happy to excited to support and happy is happening. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So you focus on the bits that, uh, yeah, that I guess the audio and video you implement as part of the uh, other standards that other people um, build, but the uh, the networking side makes sense. And um, one thing, one thing I would add is I think you know I think that that we work very closely with our counterparts at Apple and Microsoft and Google and Chrome, especially Google in particular and Safari. Um, mm-hmm. And you know. We, I think we think of that. I think there's very much a feeling like that we're all kind of on the same team and we're all trying to make the web better, and that you know we're all pulling together. And so, I wouldn't say there's like a formal division of labor, but definitely we'll have projects where it's like, oh, it's pretty clear that like Mozilla is going to take the lead on this one, or it's pretty clear Google's going to take the lead on this one, yeah. pretty clear Apple's going to take the lead, yeah. and. And so I think that's like, you know, it's, it's, it's because like, it's a very, it's, it's a very expensive proposition to actually build all this stuff. And so it's helpful to have people like, oh, these guys are going to handle it and, and we'll follow along. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, there's, there's so many um, parts to it, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's the, uh, you mentioned the audio video, there's the HTML, there's CSS standards, there's uh, JavaScript, you know, you, you, as a, <laughs> as a, as a main browser organization, you obviously don't want to control all those um, standards. But you mentioned cooperation with with some of the other organizations. There is is that in any way, shape, or form formalized, or is that more of a um, let's say uh, uh, we are working on this? This we think this is important um, kind of scenario, or is is there an overriding uh, organization that tries to um, get all these uh, you know browser builders? Right. Let's put it that way in the same direction. Right? So, so there's several there's several important standards. Um, what's called a standards development organization or standards body that that works on these. Um, So there's, you know, there's uh, W3C, which is like the historical web standards Mm -hmm. organization. There's TC39, which is the historical JavaScript um, organization. There's What Working Group, which is sort of now doing more of the HTML5 stuff. And then there's ITF, which does networking stuff. Um, So like, you know, we all kind of like participate in all these. And so, you know, so, so as a concrete example, WebRTC was done in a combination of ITF for the networking pieces and for W3C for the, the HTML and DOM pieces, right? And mm-hmm. so um, so we all sort of collaborate at those at those at their standards bodies. And then of course there's a bunch of informal collaboration where you know we you know we all chat and the people who are working on things talk to each other. And so to give you an example, when we wanted to roll out TLS 1.3, this new version of TLS that I was yeah. talking about, you know, I was constantly on the phone or on instant messaging with the people at Chrome and the people at Apple and Safari saying, okay, we think we're ready to do this next, you know, we the drafts get done in, in different versions. And so we're ready to try deploying this next version. And we're going to deploy it like, you know, next uh, you know, next week, right? Or can you do that? And it's, and it's not just it's not just the browsers. It's also, of course, people like server vendors. So we've worked very close with Cloudflare and with Fastly um, and, and, and Akamai and people like that. And it's the same mm-hmm. thing, right? There's the informal channels of communication where people know each other and, you know, and that's where, you know, that's how you coordinate when things are going to happen as well as in the standards body. And it's also how, you know, you get people interested in things. You know, you're, you're working, you, I've got an interesting idea and maybe I talk to somebody else and say, hey, are you interested in doing this? And that's how things get moving, you know, before they get brought to the standards body. So the next revolution would will not necessarily be done in, I, in, in, I, in IETF committees, but rather by email or IRC or whatever the hipsters, or Discord, whatever the hipsters use these days. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I mean, yeah, I think I think that you know these like the important thing to realize about these standards bodies is that they serve a really important function of coordination and finishing, but they're not really very good at, at like technology development. And so you really need to have the technology kind of half done by the time you bring it to the standards body, or it's kind of like it's very hard to make progress. And you know, I, and so I've been involved in a lot, a lot of these efforts, and you know. The ones that work really well are the ones that are a pretty small team of people, either inside or outside of the standards body. He does a lot of the heavy lifting and talk to, talk to each other all the time. And then the sort of bigger community discussions happen once, you know, once the general contours are put together. So it's still an open process, which is really important. But it's, you know, if the process is open and there are 200 people trying to do something at the very beginning, no one can ever make progress. So it's important to have like the kind of general sense of where you're trying to go set up. And then you start saying, okay, now we're going to have a, a and, and that process will be sort of like mostly open, but not, but it'll be a small group. And then as it gets bigger, you just say, okay, now we understand we're, now we're trying to refine it. And that's when you can take, you know, people say, well, this, you know, this packet needs to look different, but or this, or this, you know, API needs to look different, but that those are compatible with this sort of, um, uh, you know, community contribution. And in fact, if you think about that, that's also the same case situation with open source, right? Which is the open source projects that really are effective are not ones where someone puts out like one line of code and says, I'm going to build a web browser. They're ones where someone builds a fair fraction of it. And then it's like stone soup and you can put it together. But if, you know, it's just completely like amorphous at the beginning, it's hard to make progress. A tiny open source project called, called Linux comes to mind, which operates exactly on that, on these principles. Precisely. Precisely. Martin, any thoughts on how Linux would have been these days if a committee was involved in terms of apart from a dictator and some walker bees <laughs> chipping in code? Yeah. No, it, it, it makes perfect sense, right? It's similar to um, let's say, projects that it, get submitted yeah. to the Apache Foundation. They have to be kind of in some way, shape or form already uh, usable and, and uh, formed before they actually built it for uh, applying to these kind of statuses. Otherwise, it's just... Does, I'm, 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 beating it, yeah. Yeah. I'm beating a dead horse here, but there's a programming language called Arda ring about Martin. It does, it does. <laughs> I, I um, wonder, I mean, I think there are about five people on the planet that are still, who are still using it, but apart from that... I, I think like they're still using it. Wayside. It depends <laughs> if the, um, the, the Netherlands Navy still has submarines, but they, they probably... I do really not know, but hard, I, <laughs> I, I, I can recall some piece yeah. in the press about a couple of years back that spoke about this, but apart from that, I think nobody uses it. And of course, for, for, for those listeners who are not as old as Martin and myself, I'm kind of, I can't really talk about Eric. Our ADA was a program language back in the 80s that was designed by a committee. I can't recall which ones. Details, maybe in the show notes. Oh. I do not know <laughs> if I can dig them up. <laughs> but mm. uh, it, it goes to show that this thing, these things never really work. And I reckon Russ is the perfect counter example for this one because a group of people got together, going back to that, to my favorite program language now, and just did things. Of course, there is now a formal structure in place in the Rust Foundation, and uh, that also handles improvement requests and all the rest of it. But as usual, uh, if you take a close look at the Rust ecosystem, it's almost comparable to, to, to Python with PyPy and all the rest of it. I will stop the marketing rant here because <laughs> there's a recent episode of something called Linux In-Laws that, that does an excellent job on market, on the Rust marketing. <laughs> so please, people listen to that. Uh, suffice it to say, 
with regards to the ecosystem, Rust, Rust is, is, is rapidly gaining speed here in comparison to the likes of C Sharp, uh, Python, JavaScript, and I'm almost going to say Java with Maven and all the rest of it. But I'm, but I'm digressing. Well, I think, um, I, think, I, mean, I think that, like, you know, there's a, the, 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 I mean, you're, I think you're certainly right that Rust is gaining traction. I think that's like really gratifying for people here to see that, that, that you know, we made the right call. Um, not me personally, but that Mozilla collectively made the right call. Um, I think, you know, that, the, that, you know, there's, there's places for different things. And, you know, certainly I, I think JavaScript and Python like play pretty important roles. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect to see them like plausibly displaced by Rust. I think the, like, the things that like Rust is a threat to are, you know, are, you know, C sharp, C sharp, maybe C plus plus and C, um, you know, I, I guess I would say like, it's very hard to explain if you're writing new code, like why you'd write like a fresh piece of code, why you'd write that in C or C plus plus at this point. Um, you know, just if, if you're going to let anybody have contact with it, like that's, you know, adversarial at all. Um, but I think, you know, like I, I've certainly done plenty of Rust programming and I've done some, you know, some JavaScript and Python. And like, I think the tasks I would do for those are, are different enough that like, you know, if I wanted to process some data, I would, you know, I wouldn't use Ross and Octave super fast, right? I'd use Python. And if I, you know, and obviously, you know, if I wanted to write a web app, I would use JavaScript, right? So I think it, like, really, it's, you know, it's, it's like courses for courses. But I think there's like definitely a niche in the ecosystem. Like, I mean, you're certainly right to say that there's a niche in the ecosystem that Rust is like kind of like invading and taking over, which I think is, is healthy. I mean, there was uh, a... Yeah, I mean, you could argue that. That C++ already took that place from us. <laughs> No, um, Martin, okay. you see, a guy, I don't know if that guy called Linus Thomas rings, rings a bell who said about 20 years back that C++ won't have a place in the kernel, but he endorsed Rust about a year ago, maybe two years ago. And it starts with the device drivers, but now more and more Rust is entering the code base. It'll take some time and full disclosure... Uh, we're just coming back from a time-traveling time exercise, more an upcoming episode. The beauty is that the Linux kernel will always be written to a large extent in C. Rust won't replace the whole thing, at least within the next 20 years. But suffice it to say that Rust is slowly easing its way into the kernel, given the fact that the Linux kernel is probably the most widely used operating system on the planet, uh, not even counting mobile, I'm joking. <laughs> It certainly has made its point with regards to being a better or a more, what's the word I'm looking for? Adopted C++. I mean, a lot of, a lot of code is written in C++. You just have to take a look at GitHub. But I think this Rust is rapidly gaining ground. But okay, the Rust Foundation hasn't Send the check yet. So we go, so the marketing stops here. Rust Foundation, if you're looking, if, if, if you're, if you're looking for, for more, for more marketing, apart from the upcoming episode, the, uh, email address is sponsor at linux.edu. Go right ahead. Please get in touch. But Martin, I'm sure you had some more thoughts, uh, beyond Rust. <laughs> what is there? What else is there beyond Rust? <laughs> anyway, uh, quite yeah. a few things. <laughs> uh, now it's um I guess you you've also made this uh you, you've grown up with uh, the internet just like everybody else has uh, on this podcast. And um uh clearly browsing has become more of a let's say the way that 
everything is consumed, content consumed um, over time, right? That that's you know uh, if we um, whether it's cat videos or music, it, everything is tends to be browser based. Um, how did you did you foresee this happening, and did you actually? Uh, how do you see this going forwards? Because uh, you know we went through uh, we always go in cycles in the uh, in this industry anyway. Right? Never, <laughs> uh, Martin. Never <laughs> with uh, you know client server and thin clients and thick clients and so on and so on and full, moving more code into the browser and out of the browser, etc. Uh, do, do you have a, uh, a view on this <laughs> or uh, a plan? Eric, before, Eric, before you answer this, for the <laughs> Martin is always as old as I am. So that has to be put in perspective. Sorry, Eric, go right ahead. Mature. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Eric, go, go, go right ahead. <laughs> I mean, this is like a very old, like, you know, pattern, right? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I'm sure you remember Java, but maybe you don't remember before that um, news, the ne- the network window system on Sun, which was like downloadable yeah. PostScript. Um, like, and they lost out to X11. So, um, you know, this idea of downloadable code is like super old. I guess I would say I, I would say like it was half a surprise to me. Like when I first saw the web, um, you know, I, I think we realized that you could build powerful applications on it, but you'd have to build new capabilities to make it happen. I, I think if you told me, you know, back in 1996 that you're going to see that's effectively the web being an operating system that you can run any application on and the people will be doing games on it. I think I would have, you know, I mean, real like high quality games. I've been kind of surprised you know, just because like, you know, that was such a clunky kind of artifact back then. You know, I, I think that the what's, you know, that the, the, the power of the web is spontaneity, right? And it's low friction. And so it's, you go to the site and you click on this and like it's perfect and like it's safe to download the thing and run it in your browser because the browser protects you and the, and there's no download, there's no install experience, it just happens, right? And so that's the and that's the thing that the web is is bringing to the party. And so anything that can be done compatibly with that is like a great candidate for being on the web. And the things that can't be done compatibly for that and they're, 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 that's good candidates. But you know, I think that, I think what you see the project of the past ten years, five ten years has been has been to find the places that like people wanted to build apps for the web that they can't because the web is missing something and then fill those things in. And so WebRTC is a great example of that. People wanted to build video conferencing for the web, but it was missing some key capabilities. And so the question was, what are the capabilities we have to put in there to make that work? And that's how you get, you know, get user media. It's how you get peer connection. It's how you get the built-in, you know, built-in codecs and echo cancellation, all those things. Those are like what's needed to make it work. And so on another front, you say, well, People want to build video games on the web. And so what do you need? You need a fast programming language, hence WebAssembly. Um, you need to be able to do gra- fast graphics, hence WebGL. And so I think that, you know, that the, the, the trajectory we see is we'd like to see people do things on the web. And we'd like to ask, what are the applications that are most suitable for webifying that um, take advantage of that low friction and that safety, but that are for some reason too inconvenient to build? And how do we build those? Eric, you got an absolute point there because if you take a look at something called Chromebooks, that's exactly it. It's a minimal Linux kernel that just boots up a browser and then you're good to go. If if you take a look at the numbers, the numbers are just astonishing. Of course, Google does a fine job with uh, pouring a lot of discount into the retail <laughs> sector, <laughs> exactly, especially yeah. in the education sector. But this concept has really taken off. 
Too bad it's not Firefox. Yes. I mean, we did we did take a run at this. We had this project called Firefox OS that was designed to be kind of like a competitor to Android, but I think you know you can imagine how hard it is to compete with Android. The app store never got really off the ground, did it? No, no, it did. That, that that project did not succeed. Though, I mean, you know, some of the pieces of that project are still floating around in the code base from from you know got repurposed other things. I mean, that was the um you you were alluding earlier to you know Firefox being a multi-process browser. The original process separation work started there. Changing onto more controversial issues, Chrome, and I'm not talking about Chromium now. To a certain extent, Chrome is also affected by Chrome. Does a fine job with turning the user into the product. Let's put it this way. I mean, if you take a look at the te- telemetry that is built into Chrome, it's a lot. And Google has certainly put a lot of money into marketing Chrome for a reason, I might add. If I take a look at what's the word, uh, what's the, what's the site I'm looking for, Martin? It's, it's, I don't know. How, uh, how, how do you market Chrome? It's, uh, it's uh, simple. You, you put ads on TV <laughs> and in print and then <laughs> you convince people to use that browser. I've never seen an because ad Chrome, <laughs> <laughs> You're living in the wrong country, Martin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no jokes aside. I mean, Chrome has, at least that was the case about 10 to 7 years ago, you could see Chrome ads on TV in print all over the place. Yes. Where Google put a lot of money to marketing the browser for a reason, because of adoption. Uh, the website is, what is it, what is it, Eric? Stats counter or counter stats or something? Stat counter. Stat counter, yes. That gives an overview of the market share here. And if I take a look at this now, I did it about a month ago, Chrome captured about 60, 60% of the, of the market share. I reckon, and that's a fair play to, to, to Google, that they did a very good job at marketing Chrome in terms of its mobile, its desktop, its all the rest of it, never mind Chrome books, to have that adoption. Because at the end of the day, they're not interested in selling Chromebooks, they're interested in your data, simple as that. I can recall a little bit of controversy about telemetry, but in Firefox, but that was only enabled in dev builds, not in production builds. Well, so no, so so Firefox does have telemetry in production builds as well at this point. Okay, um, you know we're I think we're very careful and respectful of like what data we collect and what data we don't collect in telemetry, um, and that's that they, that's um you know we document that like I mean it's you know it's, it's open source obviously so you can see it but you can also if you're if you're running Firefox and you go to the URL bar you can type about colon telemetry into the URL bar and it will show you like exactly what's being gathered and so I think you know we try to be like you know we have a set of principles about how we handle this and we try to be respectful of what we gather and not gather um you know and, and try to avoid and, and, and don't don't gather user browsing history for instance the I, I think you know you know, my, my sense, you know, I, I don't work on Chrome. Um, I, I have done some work on Chrome in the past, actually, when I was working on WebRTC. But, you know, my sense is that while Chrome does gather telemetry, that the, the telemetry itself is not really the privacy problem. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's, I, I haven't looked at it in detail, but my sense is it's generally kind of not too terrible. But that rather, you know, that the, the Chrome is designed, as you said, to drive you to the Google ecosystem and to ask you to log into Google. And so that, and so then, you know, you're, you're using Google properties. And so I think what Chrome really does, it works, hand, it works hand in glove with like, you know, with like Google properties to like get you to these Google stuff. Right. And that's like not surprising. It's like one company. Right. And, and, th- and those properties work really well on, on Chrome. 
And so I think that that is like the, the, the impact, you know, in terms of like user privacy of Chrome is, is that fact, right? More so than like the telemetry practices. Okay. Something that has always been on my mind since version 57 of Firefox, the great API disaster. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know what this is all about, that's exactly I think. And Eric, correct me if I'm wrong. That what that that came along with the with the with the uh, taking of the new rendering engine into production. A lot of the extension APIs changed, meaning that your favorite extension all of a sudden didn't work anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so. I think so. Firefox has historically been an incredibly extensible product, and it's really extensible in in several ways. One of which is that, of course, it's open source. But the other is we had a very powerful extension API, mm-hmm. which would let you do all kinds of things, and would let you, you know, you know, basically, you could just, you could insert yourself in like you could write an extension. Um, They're called add-ons at the time that you could insert yourself in like all kinds of parts of the browser processing anywhere you wanted, and you could. And so, this was a very powerful capability. But it really depended, as you were mentioning earlier, on a particular architecture of Firefox that involved having everything being one giant process. And that when it was like multiple processes, and now when it's in like one process, um, you know, one process per origin, that became like really very hard to keep working. And so we sort of had to make a choice when we did, uh, um, you know, we did Quantum. How much effort are we going to go through to make these extensions continue to work? in the face of basic architecture, which is like not really compatible with them. And at the same time, there was like a lot of Chrome market share and there were Chrome, um, you know, people could write extensions for Chrome using the Chrome as an API. And that API was because Chrome had been designed, you know, initially to be a, a multi-process browser was much more compatible with, with that with the kind of architecture we now had. And so it was, and so it was just a lot easier, frankly, to cut over and use an API that was like mimic Chrome's than it was to try to like make all that stuff work. And so we, so it was a difficult choice um, when we finally made it, but the, we, it was just like, either we like had to do enormous amount of work or keep, um, you know, you know, or, or hold back the release um, in order to, you know, make these things work when we weren't able to. And I think, you know, what I would say is I think we've done a pretty good job, though not a perfect job of re-enabling capabilities that are important in our web extension APIs. And I guess I would say, like, you know, I don't know if you're putting my content information in your show notes, but you're welcome to. And if people think there's some important piece of, of capability that should be an extension API, that's not, like, they should contact me and we can take a look. But yeah, I know we broke a lot of people and, like, I feel bad about that, but it was kind of like a difficult trade-off we had to make. Final question on the good side from my side: Spider Monkey versus uh, what's it called? V eight. Yeah. Uh, for for those people who do not know, for, for the minority in the audience, we're talking about this unknown language called JavaScript, which that drives about ninety percent of the of the web applications that run in your browser. The rest is probably written, written in something called WebAssembly, which is slowly taking over for. A couple of decades, JavaScript has played a very important role in browser adoption. Google came up with something called, as I said, V8, that brought a lot of performance improvements to the table. There have been there have been voices in the industry that say SpiderMonkey is dated. Any comments on this? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it is. Um, uh, I think you know. 
you know, I think we, I think the industry goes through cycles where someone puts in, you know, a bunch of effort on something and then other people like race to follow up. And so definitely Google put a lot of effort into V8 and then we had to race to follow up for a while. Um, and then we've been putting a lot of effort into Spider Monkey. And I think, you know, Spider Monkey is a really, really excellent engine. So I think, you know, and, and some of the things you're, you're saying are dated, we did remove. Um, so I, I don't think like, I, I don't think, I don't think it's dated. No, I think, you know, I, I guess I would say, I think, I think, I think competition here is healthy. I think that like that, you know, Google drove us to make, to make spider monkey faster by doing v8 and we're driving them to make v8 faster by making spider monkey faster and you know and every time you know WebAssembly gets faster because one of us does it the other people have to, have to race to catch up and that's good for the user to have the system get faster overall but there are no plans of re-implementing the javascript engine in rust to make it even more parallel um no not, not really um so i think like i mean it's still written in c++ at the moment right yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, I can get back to you on that because it's something I, I don't work on very much. I think the, the thing to recognize about, about about JavaScript is that there really are two there really are two performance properties you're, you're interested in. One is how fast the engine itself runs, the part that does the compilation, and the second is how fast the code that is that is generated runs. And so you've got to sort of and, and so like and so they both they both they both impact you know, how fast the system is. And one of the big challenges in, because the, because the JavaScript engine is so complicated is actually being able to understand like at a high level, what the transforming, what the compilation process is doing and optimize that compilation process rather than just optimizing the, 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 the runtime of the compiler itself. And so a lot of the work we've done on SpiderMonkey, and again, I'm not an expert here, is to make that compilation process more transparent so that it gives us more opportunities to optimize the output code. Excellent. Martin. Yes, we talked about the browser and corporation, so we should also give the foundation some um, context. How do they, the two work together, and I guess how important is the foundation going forward with you know, the, let, let's say, the, the, uh, the Firefox uh, usage declining, right, unfortunately, whereas, um, uh, so how much is being put into the foundation to make people aware of, you know, as, as Chris mentioned, you know, all, all the, uh, the, let's say, the bespoke browsers, the Chromes and the Safaris that collect many, many uh, of your data um, for other purposes. Uh, so some of, is, is that part of the role to create awareness? Is it part of the role to um, make, make it more secure? Uh, how does that work with the corporation? Can you put a few words to that one, please? Yeah, so... So I mean, first I should say I work for the corporation, not the foundation. Yes. So anything I say was sort of sort of like from a from a slight remove. You know, what the what I see the foundation doing is, is a what's often called civil society work, which is you know trying to use the platform of being Mozilla and the resources of being Mozilla to talk to people, you know, in in the in the world about like technology and about how technology would develop well. And so certainly there's alignment. In terms of like, they think that having like a good Firefox is important, and so like they we, we all agree on that matter. But and so I think you know that, that there's some cooperation there. But uh, what I so like much so I give you an example of something that they've done recently. They do this privacy not included guide, where they look at products and they look at the privacy privacy practices yeah. and they say, well, these products are like nice. good, and these products are bad. And they I, I'm just looking at their site. They just did one on these mental health apps, and so I think you know that's an example where of real values alignment where, you know, we all 
think that we all, Mozilla, think that privacy is a very important value for users and for people. And so, you know, we the way the Mozilla Corporation does that is largely through products. And the way that that the foundation does it is largely through advocacy. And we but we also cooperate on those matters, especially when something something technical needs to be looked at, where some of that some of that um you know. Uh, capability, maybe in the maybe in the corporation rather than the foundation. But I think I think I see this as complementary. Where you know, um, if you want to change the world, you can't just do one thing. And so you know, we're trying to change the world by making a product that is better for people and that influences the market. And they're trying to change the world by helping set the terms of public debate and engagement to understand why it's so important to have those changes made. Okay, and it's, I mean, it's, it's wider than just you know uh, yeah, browsers and internet usage. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, it's um, it's like it's you know. Uh, you know, it's about, you know, I, I'm, I, 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 I can do some of this by my memory, but, you know, it's about data, it's about AI, it's about um, connectivity in places that don't do connectivity. I think, I think that they're, you know, they have a very broad kind of uh, view of like trying to make the internet and the web better. I mean, you see this when you take a look at the website. It's uh, Wikipedia tells me it's a proper 501c3. Martin, that reminds me, we, we must oh, yes. do yes. one of these. Uh, we must do an episode on on the on the on the non <laughs> on the nonprofits. We we had um, some some discussion about this recently. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, Martin. And if you want to take the day off, sorry, not an option. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I take a look at the at the foundation website, I see things like web monetization and other interesting projects come to mind that are way beyond the scope of the corporation, never mind the project, I suppose. Yeah, I guess right. I think that's right. Okay, care to elaborate on this in, in terms of, okay, you're not working for the definition, I get it, but uh, the, the, the reason why I'm kind of going down that rabbit hole, essentially, where is Firefox going, not just from a corporation perspective, but also from a foundation perspective? Uh, thanks. That, 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 that helps understand the question you're asking. I mean, so I think web monetization is an interesting uh, case. I mean, it's, it's probably useful to step back and talk about like the, the problem of the monetization should... of the web in general. Exactly. Right. We should probably first explain what 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 web monetization is in a foundation yeah. pers- uh, from a from, from a foundation perspective. Well, let's talk about like let's, let's even step further back than that and talk about the how the web is, is funded, right? So right now, yes. the web the web is largely funded by advertising. Mm. Um, and Google um, comes you know, to what, mind, <laughs> for instance, but not just Google. Um, and so you know, so you, so, you know, you want to do you want to do a site, and you know. And maybe you can sell a Substack, but like maybe not. And what you probably do is you like sell some ads on your site, right? And then you know that those ads are sold by typically connecting with some ad network. Um, so as you say, Google runs one, but there are others. Um, and you know those ads, you know, and people don't like seeing ads. But that's like forget about that for a moment. The ads are like powered by like ubiquitous surveillance of like everybody on the internet and everybody thinks they're doing, which is bad. Um, Google comes and, to mind. And, and, and the ads like, and like people don't like seeing ads either. Right. And so the question is, is there some way to fund, but on the other hand, they like having the web, you know? Um, and so is there some way to have the web without the ads or at least without the tracking? And so there's been a lot of interesting work over, you know, the past 10, 20 years about like, is there some way to like people to monetize producing content on the web that doesn't involve you know, it doesn't involve any ads. And mm-hmm. so if you're like, and so there's, and so like, if you're big, if, if you're like big and like the New York times or the Washington post, you can sell a subscription or your Netflix. Right. And if you're like tiny, you don't mind making all the money. Maybe you don't like, you know, maybe you don't care. Right. And, but if you like 
if, if you want to like make, if you're medium sized, then it's actually a real problem for you. And so there's been a bunch of interesting work, as I said, over are there ways in which people can directly pay for content or indirectly perhaps, rather than pay for it by watching the ads, right? And so that's that's the space in which mon- web mon- the monetization work sort of co- comes into. And I think it's one angle on on this on this problem, which is basically micropayments, right? And which is to say, you know, when I want to read this article on, you know, uh, on Wired, I pay them a penny, right? Instead of paying, instead of having to buy a subscription to Wired, I pay a penny to, penny to do it, right? And so, you know, I think there have been a bunch of reasons why historically micropayments haven't taken off, some of which are like technical and some of which are social. And I think it's like a little hard to know, frankly, whether or like, whether this version will take off. But I, so, but, but like, as far as I can tell, web monetization is, you know, is a put on, can we try to like really attack the web, the micropayments problem for the web? And so what I see them doing, and again, like, this is not me, but, um, but I, I sort of am familiar with it. What I see them doing is, you know, is trying to like plant a bunch of seeds and see if any of the seeds take, see if any of the seeds sprout. And I think that's like probably, I think, you know, we, no one knows it's going to work here. So trying a lot of things is probably a pretty good idea. Going forward, where do you see this going? Well, I think, you know, I guess, I guess, so I think like there's like, again, there's Firefox and the foundation. I, I, I guess what I, what I think the best case scenario for this would be the win scenario would be that the foundation's work um, and the, and this grant program gets to the point where it's pretty clear there's one angle that's going to work. And when that, and, and then, and then when that, that, that angle is going to work, then it's something the browsers can start looking at, you know, actually, actually incorporating. We've been a bit hesitant in the past to try to take, like, take a flyer in individual things because, like, the cost to us of doing anything new is, like, really high. And when you put, and, like, I don't know if, like, you've worked on a product like a browser, but one of the things about, about a browser is that, like, people expect that to change. And so if we were to, like, add, you know, a particular web monetization API today, then if we took it out in like six months, people are really mad at us. And so, you know, I think we're quite we're quite cautious about what we put in as like browser APIs. But I think that the, the the good outcome, um, a positive outcome, would be that this work creates critical mass for one system, and then that system is something we can all work with adopting. Totally, that has been more than insightful. Totally speculating now. If I take a look at history, uh, I thought history, I was speculating as- already. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. No, I, let me do some speculating for a change. Okay, okay. If I if I take a look at history, and as we all know, history tends to repeat itself, left, right, and center. When Microsoft developed something called Internet Explorer, some of the key components were actually part of the operating system that allowed Internet Explorer to be to have very short startup times because most of the stuff was up and running already. Now, if I take a look at something called Chrome OS with a, with a browser called Chrome, pretty much boot is up on, but uh, up, up on, up on kind of login, as in the boot up, you boot up the, the, the operating system, which is a minimal Linux kernel. And before you know it, Chrome is up and running. This is full circle, more or less. Now, the very tentative, the, the kind of the, the visionary question I have, not tentative, but rather visionary, the visionary question I have for you, Eric, where do you see the browser in 10 years' time? Never mind mobile or not. I think I, I like to think of myself as a pragmatist. And so I, I think, you know, maybe we're going to see radical changes, but this is a pretty mature product that has, you know, has not changed appreciably in 10 years from a, you know, from like a, a from like a sort of overall like perspective, but it's gotten is much faster and more capable. But like the sort of general shape of the browser is like unchanged. Um, so I think you know we actually published a document 
maybe two a month and a half ago that was called like um that we had the grandiose title of like Mozilla's vision for the web. I think covers a lot of the material that you know you and I have been talking about in in this conversation. But I think what we sort of think is actually the browser is like pretty good, but that the web has kind of gone off the rails, and that um, <laughs> okay, and, and that you know the browser's job is to largely bring the web back onto the rails. And so um, we could talk, you know, and we talked about a few other things here, like the ubiquitous surveillance of powers advertising. Something we haven't talked so much about is the the concentration of of data and authority in a very small number of companies in a way that is actually quite hard for you to like get out the, um, you know, how difficult it's become as an individual to, you know, to, to publish your own data without going through one of those silos. Um, so I think those are things that like that we need to repair, but I think they're like, I think, and the browser plays an important role in those in terms of building the technical foundations for making that possible um, and for encouraging those things to happen. But I, I think almost like, like I want to ask the bigger question of like, where can the web go? And what I'd like the web, the web to go is in a much more kind of democratic and, you know, broad based kind of uh, situation than what we're seeing now. That nicely brings us to the poxes, Martin, unless you have to add something or you want to add something rather. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a bit more. Um, so more more, field, but... more... More philosophical, okay, Martin, go yeah, right. No, I want to go back. We, we a have, less yeah, philosophical. We have, less philosophical. We, we have another two hours, so, the, yes, so that's indeed, fine. Indeed. Go right ahead. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, from a user's perspective, what do you see as a, a major improvement coming in the next few years? I mean, we've seen the tabs there. Obviously, that's something that's just been widely used, and we've seen profiles that are uh, movable between devices, etc. Do you see any other big development that's going to make uh, users' life easier uh, on your horizon? I think it's a little too early to say, honestly. Um, okay. yeah, that's fair. just wonder if you have stuff I, I guess, on, I guess why was, on your well, roadmap already. That's, no, I, I don't think, <laughs> we're, I don't we're, think we're there. I don't okay. think we're there yet. I think what I, would, what I would tease here is I would say that there's a real consciousness that it's gotten harder and harder and that, that, that the number of sites and the number of things people are expected to do on the web has gotten harder and harder to manage. And right. that... You know, how, how, and like that, the solution is not like to have a bazillion tabs and to have hmm. them like in a tree, in a giant tree. Um, and that we should do something about tabs, that. Yes. Um, we should do something about that. But like, I think that the exact answer to that is still to be TBD. Okay. Not even deep speech or other, some a cool AI stuff comes up, uh, comes to um, or something? Well, I, th I think, okay, I think that, you know, that's interesting. I'm sorry, Felicity, I'm normally the one to ask controversial questions. Martin yeah, yeah, yeah. Tamer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess I think, you know, I think speech is still trying to find its niche. Like, obviously, we see a lot of speech-based applications like Siri and Assistant. But, you know, I think people kind of thought they were going to have the Star Trek computer, and they don't. Um, and there's still <laughs> a lot of people using the mouse and the yeah. windows. And, and um, so I think, you know, I think that, that that feels like I think especially on you know the desktop you know so so Firefox like we have a, a mobile browser which like has a fair number of users but like Firefox is like still like dominantly a desktop product and I think in a desktop product it's a little hard to understand right now where speech fits in right and it's understand on a mobile product it kind of make I, I think there's a lot more like people like okay you know. Siri, take me to, you know, Siri, take me to, to Starbucks or whatever. But I think, um, you know, on desktop product, people are sitting in front of the, in front of the product. And so 
Uh, and so I'm certainly not saying there's no role for speech. I'm saying that we need to figure out what that role for speech is, because I think right now it kind of feels like it's an afterthought. So what interface in terms of having a browser, never mind a, mo a smartphone directly tied into your nervous system, still some way down to go? Well, that's what, I, that's what I'm hoping for is the nervous system thing. Uh. Okay. Okay, Eric, we... we At the end of the show, we sometimes, or most of the time, actually do something called the Poxies, which stands for Pick of the Week. So anything goes, something. Martin normally does, does, uh, Martin, what, 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 do, what do you normally do? Um, I, don't, I, don't I don't have a um, B, B, B movies, right? Like, like splatter yeah, things. This is, this is thing. you. <laughs> I normally do A movies, like the stuff you think about. <laughs> no joke aside. No, but anything goes. Um, on the on the episode where we had the 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 Electronic Frontier Foundation of Georgia on the on the show, I basically my pox was was the the founding fathers of the U.S. basically who wrote who wrote the Constitution. So really, anything goes. It it's it's it refers to something that has come. across cross your path recently as within the last hundred years or something we normally take a fortnight into account but it's worth <laughs> mentioning so anything goes really eric go ahead sure well i will take a moment to pitch this uh science fiction author his name is peter watts w-a-t-t-s and he has Links amazing, will be in the show notes yes and he has an amazing book called blindsight which i, I don't even know where to start um uh um it's about vampires and about um, incomprehensible aliens and the nature of consciousness and whether the future needs us or not. And it's brilliant, incredibly depressing, but it's brilliant. Um, and so um, I read a lot of science fiction and people ask me what to read and I tell them to read Peter Watts. Okay. But you're not talking about the Senate now. You're talking about some fictitious entity. I'm joking. It, it is fictitious. Yeah. How, how would you okay. um, uh, compare it to other science fiction sources kind of in style wise? Is that? Um, so it's like, it's, very hard science fiction. Watts is uh, actually a biologist. And so like, there's like footnotes yeah. at the end of the book that describe, you know, <laughs> describe everything he's talking about. It's not an easy read because he's really like, he really wants to talk about, you know, he wants, it's, it's like, he wants to explore these issues. He wants to explore. I'm, I'm serious about like the nature of consciousness. And one of the big Watts themes is like, is consciousness adaptive or is it just like a bug in your system and should we get rid of it? <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it's good stuff. Um, as I say, it's, it's really depressing, but it's good stuff. Okay. Martin. Yes, your pox, if yes. you have one. Ah, my pox, yes, of course. I yes, have one. Oh, <laughs> excellent. <God>. So, um, <laughs> my pox is the, well, it's it's not so much the Postgres conference I went to, but more the fact of me. Oh, no, here we go again, Postgres. <laughs> talking to them in person, which is uh, yeah, it's been a long time. Non-COVID, um, I see. Okay, go yes, ahead. Non-COVID non right non -COVID in person. Uh, yes. Can we expect some YouTube clips or something about the event, maybe even about the after show gig or something? Okay, probably. Uh, but then I'd, I'd have to use YouTube, which... <laughs> Links may or may not be in the show notes, people. You never know. Indeed, indeed. What about yourself? Uh, it's, it's probably a fair guess to say they won't be in the show notes. Yes. Uh, my pox is it's actually something called the... Dukes of Hazard? No? Yes. It's <laughs> the Mozilla Foundation made uh, came up with a Mozilla Manifesto that contains principles and pledges. And these 10 principles basically lay out what is important for humankind in an internet context. And it's 10 principles, 
Links, of course, in contrast to Martin's shenanigans will be in the show notes. And the one that really struck me as probably being the most important principle is actually the second principle. And let me quote this. The Internet is a global public resource that must remain open and accessible. And why is that important? Because that basically treats the Internet like a basic utility, like water, energy, you have it, and maybe even free speech and freedom in general. This is a core principle. The second thing that comes to mind is principle number seven. Free and open source software promotes the development of the internet as a public resource. That goes hand in hand. What this actually says, as in the combination, is that open source drives the internet and thus fosters innovation. There's a couple of interesting pledges. Details will be in the show notes, but this is my box for the, for, for the week. Eric, I would like to thank you for being yes. the show. Thank that has been me. more than interesting, let's put it this way. And keep up the good work. Thank you. Great talking to you. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Shimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. <laughs> to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR has been kindly provided by anhonesthost.com, the Internet Archive, and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License.